got your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, and we're going to be in verses 13 through 15 this morning. That's on page 178 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, consider that our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a Bible. So um, we're going to continue walking through the book of Joshua this morning in Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15. Well, historically inaccurate as it may be, the 1995 film Braveheart is an epic and iconic movie where Mel Gibson, who plays a man named William Wallace, he fiercely leads his people into battle. Just before clashing with the English, Wallace gives this incredibly inspiring speech about something much, much larger than himself. Uh, we all know the line well. Wallace rides around on his horse. He gives this stirring speech, and then he shouts, They may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom, right? Awesome scene. I'm sure if we thought about it for even a minute or two, we could come up with countless examples of movies or even real-life situations where people have been inspired and moved to courageousness by a great leader. Well, this morning in our passage, Joshua 5, 13 through 15, we're going to see something similar happen. Uh, up to this point, we, we've seen Joshua, this new leader of Israel, uh, we see, we've seen him receive a promise from God. We've seen him send spies into the land that was promised by God. We've seen him lead the people of Israel across the, the Jordan um, when, when it stopped flowing. And we've seen them obey the Lord by reinstituting circumcision in the Passover. But while Joshua is a great leader, he's not our William Wallace character who inspires confidence. Uh, if it isn't clear to us already, uh, there's someone much bigger than Joshua leading Israel throughout the entire book, and we're going to see that here. So Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. As we learned last week, the, the Israelites are now in enemy territory. Uh, they've, they've crossed the Jordan River. They've inconveniently obeyed the Lord in circumcision. And now they're ready to take the land that was promised to them. We would expect the very next thing we read to be an assault on Jericho, right? Ladders built, battering rams ready to go, and Joshua giving a, they put their pants on one leg at a time just like us speech. 
But the narrative pauses here to tell us one of the more important parts of the story. We've got to remember that, that this book isn't primarily a story about Joshua or about Israel, but it's a story about God. These three verses quickly kind of pull us back to that truth. The Lord is patient, much, much more patient than we are. Israel is like a ship that's all loaded up with cargo. The crew's ready to go. They've got a man at the helm, but they're not ready to pull up anchor just yet. Why? Because they don't yet have a captain. They're about to meet him right here. Joshua is outside Jericho, and in verse 13, he lifts up his eyes, and a man is standing before him with a sword in his hand. Up front, I want to answer the question, who is this man? For a little bit, we're going to be kind of jumping around to a lot of passages, which we'll We'll have up on the screen, and we've got them listed on the handout we gave out. So, so don't feel pressure to turn to all of them. I want you to kind of just stay in Joshua 5 and follow along. So point one, who is this man? Well, uh, there, there's a little bit of ambiguity here, and the text doesn't make this 100% clear. Uh, I, I would just say up front, I believe that this man standing in front of Joshua is none other than the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we see similar situations in Genesis chapter 18, where God appears as a man to speak to Abraham. Or in Genesis 32, where God comes as a man and wrestles with Jacob, renaming him Israel, which means conquered by God. Uh, I could also point to places like Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, or Ezekiel chapter 1, where Old Testament prophets have visions sounding very similar of what we see John having of Jesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Yahweh appears numerous times in the Old Testament and looks like the Jesus that we see in the book of Revelation. But can we just admit up front that we tend to have slight hesitations about seeing Jesus in the Old Testament? Jesus is only in the New Testament, right? No. The hesitation uh, we, we might have at seeing Christ in the, New, in the Old Testament, uh, I, I want to show us, does not exist for Paul in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul sees Christ in the Old Testament with no hesitation whatsoever. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. This is Paul speaking. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and that all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul the one that the Holy Spirit used to write most of the New Testament is completely comfortable at seeing Christ in the Old Testament. And we should be too. Further, this man who's standing in front of Joshua in Joshua 5, he holds a sword in his hand. While carrying a sword doesn't automatically mean you're Jesus, 
throughout the book of Revelation, this is the picture that we get of Christ. He wields a two-edged sword repetitively used for judgment. In Matthew 10, verse 34, we see Jesus saying this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. We also see this picture of Christ carrying out the wrath of God in Psalm chapter 2. So this man looks like the Jesus of Revelation, and he wields a sword like him too. Then, check this out. Back in our passage, in chapter 5, verse 14, this man identifies himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. And then he says, I have come. I have come. Throughout the Psalms, this idea of coming is chock full of redemptive meaning. I'm going to read you just a handful of Psalms where this is true. Psalm 40, verses 7 through 8. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Psalm chapter 50, verse 3. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him it is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. How about Psalm 96, verses 12 through 13? Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. One more. Psalm 98, verses 8 through 9. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So he looks like the Jesus of Revelation. He wields a sword like Jesus. And he says, it says he comes. Now, let's look at Joshua's response to him. While we're going to come back to Joshua's response with more depth later, I want us to just look at what he does at the end of verse 14. At first, he merely sees uh, this man, possibly an adversary, but he he quickly realized that, that, that he was mistaken. And look what it says. It says that he fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. Fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. Now, in Acts chapter 14, Acts 14, verses 8 through 20, uh, there's Paul and Barnabas. We know there that that Paul and Barnabas are are mistaken as gods, and they're worshipped by the men of Lystra. Uh, These men of Lystra think that Paul and Barnabas are are Zeus and Hermes, so they start worshipping Paul and Barnabas, and I want us to see what their response is. Acts 14, verses 14 through 15 says, But when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all 
that is in them. So these men fall down and they worship Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas say, don't do this. Get up. We're only men. Similarly, in Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, we see John himself. We see him fall at the feet of an angel to worship him. Let's see what happens there. Revelation 22, verses 8 through 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So John worships the angel and the angel's immediate response is, get up. Don't worship me. Worship God. Now, take a look back at Joshua chapter 5. Joshua falls on his face and worships the commander of the Lord's army. And what happens? He receives it, right? This is not an angel and it's not a mere man. This is divinity. He comes. He looks like Jesus, he carries a sword like Jesus, and he receives worship like Jesus. Finally, look at what happens in verse 15. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Only God has the ability to make a place holy. And this language here, he uses purposefully to draw our attention back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, 5, we know the story well. Then he said, this is God speaking from the bush, do not come near, speaking to Moses, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Skip down to verse 8 and see what Moses is promised then. This is awesome, Exodus 3, 8. So God says to him, take off your shoes, and then verse 8, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So God appears and he promises this land in Exodus 3 and God's appearing and leading them into that land in Joshua 5. The author of the book, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants you to make this connection. So who is this man standing before Joshua? I believe it's Jesus. This is in keeping with the promise that's made to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, you'll remember. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. Now, if you're anything like me, you read passages like this and you think, that's awesome. I can't imagine what it must be like to have Jesus standing in front of you, ready to lead you into battle. That's amazing. Well, what if God were here today to lead Santa Cruz Baptist Church like that? Friends, he is. He is. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. 
Some of the last words of Jesus here on earth. And this is what he says. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Santa Cruz Baptist Church. Christ is with us. Do you understand how amazing that is? Christ's presence is with us and he speaks to us through his spirit, through his word. The king is in our midst and his sword is drawn. This has so many implications for us. If you teach your children, if you teach children, even down there in the other room on Sunday mornings, you're not just a simple man or woman, boy or girl, sitting down to talk to kids about their souls. The king is present. And you carry his authority as you serve. If you're here and your marriage is struggling, I want you to know that that in and of yourself, you can't fix that. But the king can. And he's present with you. If you have a friend or a family member or a co-worker who doesn't know the gospel yet, and you're timid about sharing with them, Christ is present with you. Move forward with confidence. If you're experiencing great levels of of temptation and you feel that you're under spiritual attack, you don't have to fight alone, friend. Christ, the King, the commander of the Lord's army, he's present with you. This truth should also change our expectations for preaching every single week. Because Christ is present in the preaching of his word, we should expect to see people converted. Do you pray for that to happen on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings? Do you expect that to happen when we come here and gather as a church? You should. Because the commander of the Lord's army is present with us in the preaching of his word. And he carries that authority. Friends, this truth has implications for all of life. So take courage and be encouraged by it. While Christ's presence in the text is certainly the most amazing truth in the text, there are other interesting things that that I want to point out as well as we move on to point two in your outline. Point two, question and answer. Question and answer. So Joshua, he looks up and he sees this man standing before him and not immediately understanding who it is. He asks a question. In verse 13, Joshua asks, are are you for us or for our adversaries? Good question, right? If I'm about to go to battle and there's a man standing in front of me with sword drawn, I want to know whose side he's on. Do I need to draw my sword as well, or are we about to have a friendly conversation over coffee? Are you for us or for our adversaries? Well, if this, if this is Jesus, as we've just said that, that it was, what do we expect his response to be? Yeah, I'm for you, Joshua. I'm on your side, Joshua. Let's go get Jericho. Mount the troops. Get the ladders. Get the battering rams. I'm behind you. Let's go. Instead, 
What is his response? Are you for us or for our adversaries? Verse 14, no. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He says, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. What an unexpected response. In December 1863, uh, President Abraham Lincoln, secretary, uh, his secretary of the treasury, he decided on a new motto to engrave on U.S. coins, a motto that still exists today. In God we trust, right? Well, during this time, there's this pious minister that told Lincoln that he, he hoped the Lord is on our side. The president quickly responded to him, and he said, I am not at all concerned about that, but it is my constant anxiety and prayer that I and the nation should be on the Lord's side. This seems to be exactly what's being said to Joshua here in Christ's answer. Joshua, while while I've called you to lead my people and I've promised my presence with you, I'm not on your side. You're on mine. I'm not on your side. You're on mine. Christians, if you've repented of your sin and believed in Christ for salvation, know that Christ is for you. We read earlier in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you're a Christian, that sword-wielding king who is present with us this very moment is for you, but he's not following you. You're following him. It's not for Joshua or for us to claim the allegiance of God to our cause, however right that cause may be. But instead, it's the place of God to claim us. Once again, this has so many implications for Christian life. When you pray, are you commonly praying that the Lord would follow you and get on board with your program? Or are you seeking to follow him and his program? Your kingdom come, your will be done, right? Even Christ himself, when he was here on earth, he didn't run around doing his own program. He only did what he saw the Father doing. He bowed to the Father's will. So God isn't for a particular nation or ethnicity, a certain political party, or even a particular denomination. He's for his glory. The question is, are we joining him? Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. The final point in the text that I want to call our attention to is Joshua's response. Section three of your outlines. Worship and submission. While Joshua didn't realize it at first, He quickly realizes what we came to see in point one. Whether he understood this to be the Messiah or not, 
he clearly comprehends that he's not talking to a mere man, but divinity. Right after the commander's statement, the text says this in in verse 14. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. This is the same Joshua that we've been reading about for five chapters now. Joshua, the leader of Israel, the new Moses, the one who God has empowered to be strong and courageous, that Joshua, and he's on his face, worshiping the person standing before him. You see, while Joshua had given had a God-given authoritative role over Israel, he had that for sure, but he knew that he wasn't the top dog on the org chart. He knew that he was taking marching orders from God and that that God was standing right in front of him. Then look at what Joshua says and does. Verse 15, what does my Lord say to his servants? And the commander then tells him to take off his sandals. And the text simply says this. This is beautiful. And Joshua did so. (laughs) What a great example of worship and humble leadership. Christ stands before Joshua, gives commands, and Joshua worshipfully obeys. Don't forget that that same Christ who stood before Joshua and commanded his obedience is present with us today and has given us numerous commands throughout his word, the Bible. If you call yourself a Christian, if that would be true of you, if you call yourself a Christian, Christ is your master. He's my master. He's the commander-in-chief of us all. We don't get to decide whether we dislike or like certain doctrines. He commands, we obey. There's no discussion here of what we prefer or what we think should happen or shouldn't happen. Every command that comes from the captain is essential for the soldier to keep, brothers and sisters. All of them. What Christ commands, we must humbly and quickly obey. And Joshua is an excellent example of that response. With that, we'll move on to our fourth and final point on our outline. Point four, a call to action. So I want to conclude this morning in light of all that we've seen in these verses to conclude with a call to action. All of this has a purpose. Christ doesn't just appear to Joshua here in these verses for no reason. He's preparing Joshua for what's about to happen in Jericho in chapter 6. The Lord's people are about to march in with the Lord in front of them to overtake the city of Jericho a city of people who don't know Yahweh, the Lord God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I humbly but unapologetically want you to know that in one sense, you're our Jericho. With with Jesus standing in front of us as the commander of the Lord's army, we want your heart to be conquered for Christ. We want to win you to Jesus for your own good and for his glory. I want you to understand this. For God to be a just God, which he is, he must punish sin. And the payment for sin is death. Scripture tells us that the payment for sin is death and that each of us is a sinner. 
Each of us, therefore, every single one of us in this room, me included, whether you're a Christian or not, each of us deserves death for our treason against God. That's, that's the penalty we owe to a just God. God can't simply just let us off the hook. That would make him an unjust God, a judge who merely looks the other way. But in his mercy, he sent his own son, Jesus, as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sin. So when you read this story and and you think, I wish that that Christ would go before me and fight for me like that. I want you to realize that he already has. That same commander of the army of the Lord came down to earth. He lived a perfect life, which gets credited to you as righteousness, by the way. And then he died as a perfect sacrifice. He won the battle on the third day by raising from the dead and defeating once and for all the enemies of sin, Satan, and death. If you're not a Christian, you can have Christ as the commander of your life. And you can do that by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus as the only source of your salvation. You are our Jericho, and we pray that Christ would conquer and lead your life. Just as we're going to see Israel march around the walls seven times, we as a church want to metaphorically march around your life, praying for you, serving you, loving you, and displaying Christ to you until your walls fall down for your good and the glory of Christ. The commander of the army of the Lord stands before you. Will you let him fight for you? Will you follow him? It's our desire and prayer as a church that you will. Church, Christ also stands before us with sword drawn. We also have a decision to make. Realizing the presence of Christ in our midst and his numerous commands to us that he's given us in his word, will you respond with worship and obedience? Pray with me.